Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with Art Shawpeter. Art recently completed the TPC Colorado outside of Denver. The project had many interesting twists and turns, and Art's going to tell some of those stories. He's going to describe some of the architectural tactics he used on the golf course, such as revetted bunkers and best utilizing stunning views. And we're also going to talk with Art about the relationship golf course architects have amongst each other. But before we get going with Art, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a huge supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad that they're on board, and we're glad that Art was able to take some time to join us. Well, Art, it's great to have you on the podcast. Congrats on the opening of TPC Colorado. Last week when we were kind of discussing logistics of the podcast, you made the comment that one of the things you try to do is put the golf in the golfer's hands. What do you mean by that statement, and what impact does that statement have on your work? Well, uh, Guy, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the uh, the invitation. And, yeah, you know, that's, I guess it's one of the key things that I talk about when i you know talking about design issues with my clients and, and what I'm trying to do is, uh, yeah, I want to put the golf in the golfer's hands. And, and by that, it, you know, it, at the top level, it means give them options of play. Uh, I, I want the golfers to kind of decide how they're going to go about navigating their way through the golf course. And so I'm always looking for opportunities to give them a variety of ways to play the golf hole, uh, whether it be from the tee, you know, from the landing area and approach shots and, and working their way back strategically from the green to the tee and, and, and deciding how they want to, uh, you know, do they play to the left, do they play to the right, do they try to take on a hazard, do they not try to take on a hazard. I want to create as many options of play. And the, the key thing to me, what that does, is it, I think it puts the golfer in a, in a positive mindset when they're out there playing. Um, you know, if you dictate every shot to a golfer, on a golf course, or if you dictate a, a substantial number of shots to the golfer, I think for for most players, because the game is inherently challenging and difficult as it is, it just gets to be a bit overwhelming and oppressive, and I think it, it can lead to a negative mindset, and then when they get off the golf course, their, their, their thought of the design and the experience is going to be coming, coming from a negative standpoint, oh, I was beat down, that golf course just beat me down, because I couldn't execute all the shots I, I was trying to, or that it was asking of me, but if I give them enough room to play and I give them options of play and I put the golf in their hands, they're making the decisions out there. And I, I think the same score coming off of that kind of a golf course, I mean, a golfer's going to look back and through the round and say, well, yeah, I tried to do this and it, I didn't quite pull it off or, or I tried to do that and I didn't pull it off. And so you know, I think it's a different set, mindset where they say, you know, that golf course didn't seem as difficult. I know I can do better out there. And it's just more of a positive experience. And I think I'm always trying to put it into more of a positive experience, a positive emotional state out there. And, uh, and so that's really, I think, you know, the core of what I want to try to accomplish from my design work. I think if, if it's enjoyable, I mean, I have an obligation to my clients to, uh, to create repeat play out there. And, and I think the, the quickest way to have repeat play is to have people go out, play the golf course, and just come off the golf course in a real positive mindset of, man, I really enjoyed that. Or, you know what, I think I can get a couple strokes off that golf course the next time I come out, next time I come out here. Um, and it's it's interesting because it, I had three uh, key quotes that I've given to the uh, TPC Colorado guys in my description of the golf course design uh, that I gave to them, uh, to the GM, and my whole my whole breakdown. I basically couched it with three key quotes: two from Max Baer and one from Alistair McKenzie. 
and all three of their quotes have the same kind of positive uh, mindset uh, we woven into the quote. Uh, you know, Max Bear talks about the object of golf is to give an intelligent purpose to the striking of a golf ball. Uh, to be worthwhile, this purpose must excite and hold interest. And so, again, that, I think the key word there is excite and hold interest. Uh, and then Alistair McKenzie also talks about, you know, the successful negotiation of difficulties is what gives rise to pleasurable excitement and makes the golf hole interesting. And so, again, you see the same thing with pleasurable excitement. I think there's, those, are, those are kind of key attributes uh, to, I think, really good designs out there. And, uh, and so that's kind of where I'm coming from when I talk about putting golf in the golfer's hands. Who put the golf in your hands, and how did you get involved in this crazy game and this crazy profession? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, um, I, I, I kind of feel like I kind of came in the side door of the industry a little bit. Um, it wasn't. I'm not one of those guys that was sketching golf holes when he was five years old and ten years old. I I, I had dreams of being a professional hockey player when I was a kid, and uh, you know, growing up in Detroit and a big Red Wings fan, and going to a lot of games with uh, my dad, and that was kind of my background. But it's funny when I you know, now that I've been in the golf industry for. 26 years, I guess. I started in 1992 when I first got hired by Keith Foster. Um, when I look back on it, it, golf had some kind of weird gravitational pull on me uh, throughout my life that I wasn't even aware of. Uh, my grandparents were lifelong golfers, and, and my grandfather, it was a given on Saturday morning, and when he went over to their house, he was not going to be there until 1 or 2 in the afternoon because he had a standing Saturday morning game at the club. And my grandmother played uh, weekly with her with her ladies groups, and so it was always kind of there, even though I didn't play as a kid. But um, in junior high school, I decided I'd caddy for a summer at a country club in Detroit, and so I spent a summer caddying that year. And and then in college, uh, as I was working on my landscape architecture degree, I came across an opportunity to work on a maintenance staff for a summer, and I spent actually spent a summer and a half working at a country club up in Boulder, Colorado, uh, on the maintenance crew. I just it, It's funny how I kept coming back to golf in these weird tangential ways, even though I had no idea of going into the golf business. But uh, but I also took up the game a little bit more actively in college. I had roommates who all played and played quite a bit, and uh, guys who were on, I was on the hockey team with. And, and so I started playing actively, and, and, and I really kind of got caught by the golf bug. And I remember thinking one day, and when I get done playing hockey, I'm going to focus on golf. I really enjoy this game, and I, and I and it just you know the challenge and the kind of the chess match in your own head of a trying to figure out how to hit the ball and b trying to figure out how to get around the golf course. It, all that stuff appealed to me, and uh, but, you know. But again, I was thinking from a playing standpoint, not from a you know getting the business standpoint. And uh, in uh, in 1991, I was doing some landscape architecture. Just after I graduated, I had my own little uh, residential landscape design and and construction business going and one of my clients said hey would you be interested in golf course design and i was like, yeah i would be actually i think that really would appeal to me and they had a they had a, a contact with an architect who was looking for an entry-level guy and i spent nine months chasing that guy trying to get you know an interview with him and send him my portfolio and I said yeah it looks great and i'll get back to you and i didn't understand why he wasn't getting back to me i understand that now i know how these projects go how long it takes for a project to uh you know, from the time you might sign it and think you've got a job to the, to the time it actually becomes active or actually gets completed, I understand how that works now. And at the time, I didn't. But uh, in waiting for him, I thought, well, shoot, I might as well send some resumes off to some other architects. So I went to the ASGCA's website and, uh, well, excuse me, not website, but I got a hold of this is prior to the websites, but I got a hold of their membership directory and I sent 
brochure packages or resume packages off to about 30 architects, basically canvassed the West Coast. And uh, I got two people responded, and one of them was a guy out of Phoenix named Keith Foster who said, yeah, if you're going to, and I had said I'm going to be in your town at this point in time, I basically got on the road, spent three weeks traveling around the West Coast trying to draw up interviews. And uh, he said, yeah, if you're going to be in Phoenix, I'll meet with you. And and he did, and I, I met with him, and, and four hours later he said, it was a Thursday, he said, can you be back on Monday to start? And I said, yep. <laughs> and that was, I got hired by Keith Foster, and so I, I kind of came in the side door, but I didn't realize that I was going into a really good business at the time. Keith was a, just an outstanding person to uh, apprentice under and learn under uh he had such a uh such a dedication and knowledge to the history of the game you know both architecturally and and overall and and he, he really just drummed that into my head as soon as i got in the door you know focus on this stuff read these books take you know he had the whole library at the time which of course i have the whole library myself now but you know read mckenzie and and read thomas and read hunter and read all the stuff and mcdonald and understand the stuff and and uh, it was very fortunate. So I just, you know, it, it's that old thing they say about timing is everything. And uh, and the timing for me was just uh, was perfect. He was looking at the same time that I was, and and our paths crossed. And and 26 years later, I'm I'm still here. So in college, you're working on a golf course maintenance crew in Boulder, Colorado. A few decades later, you get a chance to be involved with the TPC, Colorado in an era when not a lot of new golf courses are being built, what has that project meant to you? And describe TPC Colorado in your own words. Yeah, it's uh, it's such a, a really big opportunity in a lot of different ways, you know, both personally and professionally. Um, and you're right, it's just down the road from... It's just down the road from Boulder. I mean, it's not more than you know, 25, 30 minutes away from from where I was in college. And to think that I actually uh, designing a golf course of this magnitude that close to home is uh, is really a, a heck of an opportunity. Um, it's uh, it's actually the second course that I've done for this client. I, I did a course for him up in Windsor, Colorado, called Highland Meadows, uh, back in the early 2000s. That opened in 2005, and and actually that's. What led to this property, uh, you know, or this opportunity, in in uh, in the fall of 2004, as we were still under construction and finishing up the Highland Meadows course, he became aware of this other property in Bertha, Colorado, about 20 miles south, and and uh, and so the t- there was two partners really, and and they asked me to go out and look at the ground with them one day on one of my site visits. So I went in, and this was in late 2004, and we went and walked the ground, and and we realized that it was just a spectacular piece of ground you've got the ground itself is actually pretty subtle but it's a spectacular setting you've got a uh, a wide open site uh six or seven hundred acres of open you know grassland up there in denver uh, you know high desert ground and it, it sits against three reserv three large reservoirs probably 600 acres of water right there on your front door and you look across that water to the west, you're looking right at the front range of the mountains. It's just a spectacular setting. And um, I think you know, we all realized that it was a, a really, really neat opportunity. But unfortunately, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't time yet for that prop- project to go forward. Um, you know, it's a development project, and it was not a TPC course originally. Uh, back in 2004, you know, we were looking at it as a you know, high-end daily fee project with uh, homes and whatnot, a, you know, a master plan community, so to speak. And... Uh, uh, so we worked on it for two or three years and and developed a master plan and had a layout and you know 
really excited about this golf course that we're going to build, and, and, and then the housing market started to go south, and of course in 2008 and nine it just completely tanked, the whole economy tanked, and and the project was, was on hold for a while. And uh, we would pop back up every couple of years. They'd call me, and we'd play around with the master plan a little bit. We'd tweak something here or there. Or we'd reconsider or lay out you know, a couple holes moving this way or that way. And, and But then it would go dormant again for a year or two. And uh, finally, in January 2015, uh, they called and said, hey, you know, let's have a conference call. I remember we spent a, three hours on a Saturday morning going through the master plan that dated back to 2007 and he said okay we're ready to go let's get the let's get the plan going and and uh you know we want to build it we're ready to build it we're ready to you know do some development out there and it's time so that was hugely exciting i mean that was uh you know 11 years later from the time we first looked at that ground to the time that it actually became in earnest a real project did you think it was dead did you think it was ever going to happen did you lose that belief in what you were going to do well yeah, you know, you, you just you never quite know which projects are going to really kind of push through that. I mean, it's not atypical. I think you know, if you talk to any architect in the golf business, you're going to they're going to have stories of projects that were on and off and, and delayed for a while. And, and and so I really understand now when I was first interviewing with the uh, with the other guy, or waiting for him to to interview me, why it took so long because he thought he had work lined up, but until they really call and say they're ready to pull the trigger, it's you might not have projects. And uh, yeah, there were various times when I thought it was dead. I think I think the product, you know, the property was actually up for sale for a couple of years back in you know 2011 and 12. But I don't think they earnestly wanted to sell it. I think they just kind of threw it out there just to see. But um, but I think everybody realized that you know what the potential opportunity was here and and really wanted it to to kind of pull through. But yeah, I, there was lots of times when I'd kind of written it off and, and moved on and forget about it for six months, so to speak. And then all of a sudden they'd call again and we we play around with a little bit of details here or there. But in What's interesting is in 2015 when they finally pulled the trigger in January, they said, "All right, we're going to go. Let's, you know, let, you know, we had a big conference call and we walked through the entire golf course hole by hole, looked at our old master plan that we had agreed to seven years earlier, and uh, and talked about details. I listened to things they liked about the plan, things they didn't like, things they wanted me to reconsider, and I said, "Okay, give me 60 days and I'll get a, a revised plan done. I'll get the grading plan done and get the get the." The, the really get this thing ready to go for a contractor. And uh, so I did that and met them in March of 2015, only to find out at the end of the meeting, we walked through the new plan. I've shown the revised plans. I'm all excited. I think they've got a great golf course laid out, going to meet all the objectives that they wanted. And, and at the end of the meeting, I say, oh, by the way, we've started talking to the uh, PGA Tour, the TPC. We're thinking of seeing if we could turn this into a TPC course. And I looked down at my golf course that was part of a overall residential master plan. It was really a golf course within a master plan community, and I thought, this isn't going to work for those guys. <laughs> so, I'm like, we're gonna, this is a whole, you know, you've added a whole new uh, element that needs to be considered. You know, you change one consideration in a project, and you can end up changing a whole bunch of design parameters. And uh, so <laughs> in March of 2015, I thought I had a final... Uh, design done and ready to go in December of 2015 I actually finished the final design and sent it out to bids to contractors how does that change things when you know that professional golfers are going to be involved they're a little different than your 15 to 20 handicappers yeah yeah they are for sure and um, you know so yeah when you start talking about uh, you know a TPC course 
which entails with it a literally a tournament golf course. Everybody talks about creating a championship golf course or you know, wanting to have a championship, quote, a championship golf course. This one literally has to be prepared to host some kind of professional championship-level tournament, uh, which it will starting next year. They're going to actually have the web.com out there uh, starting in 2019. But uh, it, I needed to think about the overall design from the standpoint of, okay, one week out of the year, I'm going to have professional caliber golfers out here, whether it be the PJ Tour or the Web.com or, or whatever. But then 51 weeks out of the year, I'm going to have the general public out here and or member play, the rest of us golfers. And, uh, yeah, it really it, it changes things on a few different levels. So, I mean, one of the big changes, obviously, is, the, so to speak, the scorecard, the length of the golf course. Um, the golf course that I had designed in March of 2015 uh, topped out at about 7,400 yards in length. And this is at 5,000 foot elevation. Um, the golf course now tops out at, you know, 7,991, just a hair under 8,000 yards. Uh, so we had to add some length to the golf course to make it, you know, capable of, uh, of hosting those players. Uh, but at the other end of the spectrum, I think, you know, most golf courses, you know, tend to put the forward tees, just under 5,000 yards. I've been I've been pretty successful getting my forward tee down into the 45 to 4,800 yard range. I actually created a forward tee on this course that's just over 4,100 yards, and then a 4,800 yard tee. So I've actually got the range now. There's a 4,000 yard range from the forward tee to the back tee um, to try to uh, make sure that I've got the playability factor accounted for. The golf course is going to be a lot of fun for the regular folks and still have some of the challenge built in for the for the better players in terms of length but um uh, you know so when you when you talk about hosting a professional tournament you've kind of got i mean that, that's one element is just you know kind of the length uh component uh the layout component and that was one of the things that had to change with the design um was you know kind of reevaluating the the plan that i had done in march to accommodate an additional you know five or six hundred yards of length but the other component is just the the overall routing itself, and you know the consideration for potential spectator movement on the golf course, for people to view the golf course, to view the tournament, uh, and not just from the golfers and how they play it. And that was one of the things, one of the challenges with the layout in March that was still, you know, basically what I would call it was still a master plan with a golf course in it. And what happened once the, the conversion to becoming a TPC course got. Uh, solidified and, and agreed to is that portions of the golf course changed. We, we modified the routing, and to the owner's credit, they were willing to modify the development to create a little bit more of a core golfing experience and and get a better experience, not just for the golfers, but also for spectator movement around the golf course and the ability to have the space to move people around. Um, you know, one of the key considerations was um, one development pod got flipped with two golf holes. We had two golf holes. They were the first and second holes. The starting uh, routing was was flipped with a with a development pod that was going to be houses. And that just that one flip, which was suggested by uh, Steve Wenslaw for the TPC, was trying to get more golf around the clubhouse. We actually have a layout that's a non-returning 18-hole layout. So you you know once you leave the clubhouse, you go off and play. You don't come back to the clubhouse until well you get back at the 16th hole, but you basically play one loop. So. We don't have two, you know, nine-hole returning loops on this layout. And uh, Steve's like, listen, if we're going to have a tournament out here, we've got to be try and get more golf around the clubhouse because that's where people are going to tend to gravitate to. Obviously, they're going to start there and work their way out. And uh, that one flip that the owner agreed to 
allowed us to basically put, we've got now, you can sit in the clubhouse and see hole one, 15 green, all of 16, 17, and 18 green, all right there within, you know, 100 yards of the clubhouse. So, uh, you know, that was another consideration that needed to be made, and big adjustments that needed to be made uh, to accommodate, a, you know, an actual professional event. So you said the golf course was 7,991 yards from the tips. Did you think about going 8,000? <laughs> that's the measured distance. It, there's 8,000 yards out there. There's more than that probably because that's, you know, that's center of tee to center of green. But uh, I think they wanted to – I don't think they wanted to put 8,000 on the scorecard necessarily, but, but the length is out there. Um, it's, it's in the golf course. If you, you know, the greens are – are generally pretty big in size. They average over 7,000 square feet, and so you know there's there's no doubt that you can play it a little further back. I I actually took a a college golfer out there uh, on about a month and a half ago, and um, a real strong golfer. He actually qualified for the U.S. Amateur uh, a couple weeks ago and played out in Pebble Beach last week. But uh, he played he played the entire golf course, and this is you know we're still growing, so the golf course isn't exactly up to speed yet as far as fairways and, and greens go. But uh, he, he basically went to the back tee on every hole, took one step and put his peg in the ground right there and played the golf course <laughs> one step from the back edge of every back tee. And he shot an even par 72. So um, it's not too long, that's for sure. Yeah, and before people uh, hear close to 8,000 yards and freak out, designing at elevation is a little bit different than designing at sea level. Uh, explain how that factored into your decisions. Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good point, and the key. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's something to consider because uh, you know the golf course. Um, well, it sounds extremely long, and it would be at sea level, uh, up at elevation at five thousand feet. That was, yeah, that was a. I, I spent weeks trying to work out tee positions and yardages for these golf holes. Um, with, you know, based on that, and trying to understand how much influence uh, elevation uh, needed to play, altitude needed to play on the golf course. And what I came up with is they act actually think it's a range you know it's not uniform for everybody um i mean the senior golfer playing off of the forward tee or the second tee does not get the same benefit of elevation that uh you know that a professional caliber golfer with his club head speed and 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 uh, optimization of clubs and balls and all that stuff gets off of the back tee so what i ended up coming up with was a range of factors um, you know, the, from the back tees, they actually used a range of a, a 10 to 12 percent factor in terms of benefit that those players would get. And so I added 10 to 12 percent uh, to uh, shots. You know, the shot consideration for for the you know players coming off the back tees, and then I worked that percentage down as I moved forward through the tees to kind of help establish uh, you know the proper yardage breakup. Um, you know, a, a, a high quality. You know, low handicap, uh, you know, non-professional golf, amateur golfer, you know, is more in the 7 to 10% range. Um, you know, some senior men golfers or, or better female golfers might be in the 5 to 7% range and so on. So that that helped dictate how the tees got spread out on the golf holes. And then I try to give the tees as much length as I could. Um, they're not all connected, but I, you know, I wanted to have generally longer tees so that, again, I, I want as much flexibility in the setup of the golf course as possible. Um it's almost like you know putting the golf setup in the in the superintendent's hands as opposed to putting the golf in the golfer's hands. Again, as much flexibility as possible. It's a wide open site. There's no trees on 17 holes. We have all the trees on the site are on one golf hole, and uh, so wind will be a factor out there from time to time. And uh, you know, so it, 
it, it, there's a lot of flexibility, but that was that was kind of the process of going through setting up the tees and the scorecard, so to speak. I noticed in some of the pictures I was looking at, TPC Colorado has some revetted bunkers. What goes into your mind when you're doing bunker design, and how do revetted bunkers pop up into a course like this? Another kind of interesting story um, on that, the, uh, the revetted bunkers kind of popped up. So, again, going back to my client, you know, their wishes and the fact that I had done a project for this client. Interestingly enough, when I was doing Highland Meadows back in 2003 and four, and we were under construction, um, I went out for a site visit sometime in late July, go back out for, you know, I was out there every week basically, but I popped back in a week after the Open Championship of that year and 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 the client who was you know not he didn't come from a golfing background so to speak he's he's definitely a golfer now and has has really you know educated himself and is very knowledgeable about the golf business uh, but at that time this was his first golf course and he started asking me about the bunkers you know did I watch the tournament on TV well, of course yeah sure I saw that and did you see those bunkers yeah how, basically he said how come we don't have any of those those are really cool let's do some of those and I spent ten minutes trying to explain to him why. Those weren't as easy to do in the United States, and, and it was going to be a big cost impact. You're going to have to rebuild them every three or four years, and and the dry conditions and the temperature is going to make it difficult. And I give him the whole spiel, and he said, well, I don't. I, I want to see some. I want to, I want to see some on the golf course. Well, we were three-quarters of the way done with construction, but I got really lucky in that one of the golf holes that was not completed yet was the what I had is the short kind of reachable par four, risk-reward par four, that in addition to not being done yet and maybe being the right hole to do something like this, the bunker face itself was going to face to the east. The hole played east to west. And I thought, this maybe we just do one on one hole as opposed to trying to scatter bunkers on three or four holes and have it not really make sense. So we went ahead and did we did two revetted bunkers on one hole in that golf course, so with one being a really deep, very pronounced deep bunker at the green on this you know drivable par four. And I think it worked out real well um, from a design standpoint. It made for a neat feature, kind of a talking point out there. It was it was a one-off deal, and um, and it was you know so it was already kind of in it was in my client's DNA when we when we started talking about the TPC Colorado and the design of that. That was one of the things he brought back up again was hey, I'd, I'd like to see more of that up here because I like that. I want to see some of that you know, on the golf course. And so obviously having that discussion at the beginning of the project allowed me to incorporate it a little differently uh, and a little bit more uniformly. And it tied in with some conversations I'd had with the, with the tour design guys regarding bunkers and, and how strategic are bunkers for tour players nowadays or, or how, how lack of strategic they are you know, with their proficiency in getting out of bunkers. Um, and so I thought, you know, this might be a good way and a good opportunity to kind of add an element of strategy to the golf course for for better players, not just tour players, but, you know, better amateur players as well, uh, you know, add some interest to the golf course, and it kind of fit in with the overall setting. You know, we had this wide-open, kind of subtly rolling site, no trees out there. I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, kind of look at it and want to equate it with kind of a linksy style golf course in a sense. So uh, I went ahead and added, you know, Revetted Bunkers has one of my uh, one of my design tools, and, and it's not – Every bunker is not revetted. I think there's, I think there's 38 total on the golf course out of 66 bunkers. But it's, there's a combination of revetted bunkers and, uh, you know, big freeform, you know, flash-shaped bunkers. And so the revetted bunkers really, you know, they're there. They have a very specific design intent. Um, 
I think what it does is it gives the it gives the individual bunkers some character on the golf course. There's certain bunkers you just you are going to learn that you do not want to get into, and you really have to consider whether you whether you want to take them on or not uh, for the you know for the advantage you might get if you if you're able to negotiate past them. So it added another level of strategy to the golf course, I think, and um, you know again kind of taking what my client was was kind of wishing for, and and then also thinking about it from the tour player standpoint or the tournament player standpoint and, and figuring out how to create a little bit more value in the bunkers out there. Do you foresee Rivetta bunkers being used more and more in North America? Well, you know, I can see it because actually to, you know, the other point of the equation and what made it more feasible at this point than, you know, 15 years ago when we were talking about it in his golf course is actually it, it's, there, it's not real sod. You know, we're, we're using a, an artificial uh, turf, uh, we used Durabunker was the was the product, um, and it, which, which really just became available in the last few years, uh, at least as far as I was aware of it. When we first started, I guess in 2015, when I first started talking about it or, or looking into it, it was only I think it only been out for a couple of years as an option. But it's 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 turf, it's artificial turf with a complete sand infill uh, that that we stack just like regular sod, and um, so. We've adjusted the maintenance component of of doing real stack sidewall bunkers in that you know now they're relatively maintenance free uh, depending on whether you want to let the moss grow on the face or not let the moss grow on the face as they you know as the irrigation hits them over time. Uh, other than that, they uh, you know they're going to stay in place. They're going to require a minimal amount of maintenance to create a great look, uh, a, a different kind of strategic element. Uh, from a design standpoint, so I, yeah, I do with the availability of this, and I know there's a, f- a few different companies that are offering this now. Um, being able to do it with with not using real sod definitely creates some more opportunities in North America because that was one of the bigger challenges before: is how often you're going to end up rebuilding those bunkers. Let's face it; many of us may never go to Scotland or Ireland or England to play golf. So I would take it that that is going to be a memorable feature when a lot of people play these golf courses. Yeah, I think it's, that's exactly right. I think it's a very good point. Um, I've been fortunate to get over there, obviously, as, as part of my background and training, so to speak. But yeah, you're, a lot of people probably won't get over there. But now they'll get a sense of uh, of what it's like to you know to encounter those hazards and play out of them, or have to go sideways once in a while, or, or successfully get up and over one. I hit. <laughs> I've got one on the 18th hole that's about 30 yards short of the green, and I dropped some balls in there last month just for the heck of it to see. <laughs> And the first one I hit out of there was about five feet away. I'm like, oh wow, this is this is great. The next three hit the wall, so I was like, I should have stopped at the first one. But uh, uh, yeah, so it's uh, you know, it's, again, it's just it's a fun element. That, you know, it's a challenging element. It's just a little bit different. And I've only got th- you know, I've only got 38 of them on this golf course. Uh, they're a little deeper. Some of them are are you know, five six feet deep, and I've got three that are eight feet deep. But uh, you know, you, know, you go over to Scotland. Ireland and, and play on the courses there, and you might encounter 150 or so on a golf course. Uh, so, they're they're I think they're in strategic locations where they really have a, an interesting impact on some of the holes. And, and they're only on; they're not on every hole. So, some holes have just revetted bunkers. Some holes have just freeform bunkers. Some holes have a combination of both, and some holes have no bunkers at all. You mentioned that the TPC Colorado has some reservoirs surrounding it, and there's some mountains in the distance. Do you think about the views golfers and homeowners are going to have when they're at the course when you're designing holes, or do you just completely focus on the strategy of the hole and not really pay much attention to the scenery that's around? 
No, no, it's it's a it was it's a huge consideration, and you know it's, it's kind of layered in. That's that's kind of the first consideration in in the routing step of of laying out the course. Um, I mean, you're looking at certain features on the ground that you can utilize and and get you know tees or greens or or hole. You know, if there's some interesting feature out there, try to get something oriented around that hole around that feature. But um, but no, the views and especially in Colorado on the front range of Colorado, running up and down. The, that corridor, you know, from Denver up to Fort Collins and down to Colorado Springs, the views to the west are just spectacular. You can you can spend all day looking at the mountains. You know, what's interesting is they change throughout the day as the sun moves across the sky. You know, the sun comes up in the morning and it's shining right on the mountains. You, it highlights certain slopes and certain hills and features. And then at noon, it, 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 you look and it's changed again. And, and it, it's 6 or 7 in the evening as the sun is starting to set behind the mountains now. And you've got it's just it's a whole different look, and you can I mean you can look at the mountains all day long, and, and people love to do that. So, so it was a huge consideration, and it was one of the big considerations on the overall design of the golf course. In fact, you know that's how we ended up with a non-returning 18-hole loop, so to speak. You know the best clubhouse location on the property. We, we ended up putting the clubhouse in the best location for the clubhouse. It's up on a ridge. The, the eastern edge of the property is is elevated. It's about 60 or 70 feet higher. Uh, there's, a, there's a ridge that runs north to south, and so the whole property just sits in a bowl between the lakes and the mountains on the west side and this ridge on the east side. And so we've got the clubhouse up on that ridge, the first tee, the 18th green, and, you know, 16th hole kind of play up and off that ridge. And otherwise, the golf course just meanders out across the property, and it's a really neat, you know, I think kind of a, a sense of adventure as you work from one area of the property to another area of the property, you don't even realize the third reservoir, the biggest reservoir out to the west, which is a mile long, you don't even know it's out there when you show up at the golf course and you're at the clubhouse. You can't see it. And you don't see it until you get to the eighth hole, and all of a sudden you pop out onto this peninsula where the green's at for the eighth hole, and which is the one hole between the trees, this par three. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, where did this come from? There's this huge reservoir of water, which in Colorado is you know, not exactly that frequent. And um, the, the views, the orientation of the golf holes, I mean, there's, there's four or five spots on the golf course where the holes kind of turn to the west and, and just set up a, a beautiful view looking right at Long's Peak, which is the 14,000-foot know, peak right there, uh, strictly right west of us. And, in fact, the 16th hole, which is kind of our marquee hole, uh, it's the shortest hole on the course, par three, but the tees are literally abutted up against the clubhouse. The clubhouse patio uh, drops down onto the back of the tee box, and from that tee box, you're going to be playing, you know, 140-yard, 150-yard shot slowly downhill to the green. Long's Peak is directly behind that green. From the center of the clubhouse to the center of the green, you know, there's an axis that, that you just has everybody looking right at the, the premium view in northern Colorado. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a very big consideration, especially at the, uh, at the first level. And once we get all that laid out, then I can start getting into some of the the micro design issues of strategy and, and how each of the golf holes sets up. Okay. Now that our listeners have images of Colorado and Scotland <laughs> running inside their heads right now, where are some other places you've worked recently and what are some things you maybe have on the horizon that you're excited about? As far as right now, I've been working the last couple of years just right here in St. Louis actually with a club Westwood country club. Um, and I'm real excited about that. So, the club that I worked with 20 years ago with uh, Keith uh, Foster, when we, when we first moved to St. Louis, we did a master plan for him and, and implemented a good portion of that master plan over about four or five years. And uh, and a couple of years ago, the club had uh, 
decided it was time for you know another master plan and they wanted to you know have some new considerations on the golf course and uh and I was fortunate enough to be uh retained to to work with them only about 3 miles from my uh from my office so that's real nice it's uh, extremely local um and uh so I worked on a master plan for a couple of years and and we're actually breaking ground tomorrow on uh our first phase of work and it's going to be a complete bunker renovation of the golf course so we are uh, contractors showing up tomorrow morning. They've got a, their last event of the year is finishing up today, and tomorrow morning at seven o'clock we'll be on site with the contractor. Um, getting into the first two or three holes, we're doing all the bunkers on the golf course, and we're going to be putting in better billy bunker liners and pro angle sand. Uh, it's going to be a, a huge difference for the course. When we did the bunkers twenty years ago, the big consideration was ease of maintenance back then. We needed to do something, in, you know, to keep the maintenance easy. So it was local sand. We had no liner back then, no liner consideration. So we just used a local sand, the local river sand, which is a little bit browner and um, and a little bit rounder, so it doesn't set real well uh, on slopes and zoysia grass faces. And uh, and so now we're going to go back in now that we've got a few more tools in the in the tool belt to work with in terms of the liners and and specifically the Better Billy Bunker Liner is what we've uh, chosen to go with on this project. Um, the superintendent is uh, real excited about having that uh, product on site and, and incorporating that into the, uh, into the bunker. So we're going we're gonna to take the sand up on the faces a little bit more, create a little bit more dramatic look for the golf course. They've got a lot of uphill holes anyway, so it's hard to see the bunkers if they don't flash the sand a little bit. And then um, uh, we're, we're going to go with the Pro Angle Sand, which is going to set up real nice and more angular sand, a whiter sand. So it's that's going to be real exciting. We did a test bunker for the membership about a month ago on the driving range. We did a, a practice bunker, and it, it met with a lot of uh, enthusiasm. People were real excited about it. So that's that's going to be fun. We'll be working on that this fall. And um, and I've got a nine-hole course I'm working with uh, a, a longtime client down in uh, Texas that we are getting ready to uh, uh, to start construction this fall on a new nine-hole course that I think is going to be very interesting. Um we're actually going to we're going to have based on how the tees are set up, and I'm not going to have formal tees, so to speak. It's going to be mostly plateaus and, and kind of working features into fairways. But we're going to have that course set up where it can play as as two distinct nine hole loops uh, with two different pin locations, and or um, you can play as a par three course uh, based on different angles and some different positioning of of tees. And uh, I think it's going to create a a super high utility to the use of the site based on having some greens mixed on site from an old 18 hole golf course that has been closed for about six or seven years. Uh, and the fact we're only putting nine holes back in, uh, we're going to end up with greens that average probably 17 to 18,000 square feet in size, which is going to allow me to put two hole locations on the green and not have them feel like versions of the same hole. They're going to be 30, 40 yards apart in some locations. So that project is getting ready to kick off. So those are the two things that are really kind of coming out, kind of keep me busy here through the winter and, and leading into next year. You're in St. Louis. You have your own firm. But from my understanding is that some of you ASGCA members sometimes collaborate with each other or pick each other's brains while you're doing a project. What type of help have you received from fellow golf course architects? And am I right about that when I say that sometimes you bounce ideas off each other's? Oh, very much so. Very much so. I've 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 really enjoyed that, and I think that's one of the that's one of the more enjoyable aspects of being a member of the ASGCA. I mean, there's some there's some real benefits professionally, but uh, it, you know, and that that's a more of a benefit that I kind of 
I think it's a dual benefit for both professionally and personally. Um, yeah, I mean, there's some there's some great guys who are members. You know, you get together formally once a year at our meetings, and you get to meet some of these guys who you, you maybe have just heard about or uh, or haven't met before. And and it's just really interesting because we all can we, we're all living the same life in a sense, uh, even though we might be doing it at different levels, so to speak, or different types of projects. But we all can relate to what each other's doing. But yeah, I've I've uh, I've relied on on other members quite a bit and have teamed up with other members on a few projects. I teamed up with Greg Martin uh, to to help him up at Oak Meadows in uh, Chicago the last couple of years. Um, he and I teamed up on a project over in China that uh, I was trying to secure a few years ago when I was going back and forth to China a little bit for a couple of years. And you know, David Ruziski and I have. Uh, it, you know, may remain friends. David really, he was the guy that trained me when Keith first hired me. David was the first one there and I was the second and, and he, he kind of showed me the ropes and he and I are still very good friends and, and we'll talk all the time. He'll send me an idea, a design idea and say, Hey, what do you think about this? You know, or I'll do the same to him. He knows, he knows the TPC course probably as well as anybody from a design standpoint, because I sent, I bounced a lot of ideas off of him. Hey, you know, I'm thinking about doing this with this bunker. What do you think about this strategy? And, and so there's a lot of that that goes on. Um, and I've talked to quite a few other members as well from time to time, and it's it's a really enjoyable aspect of the of the business and of being a member and, and getting to know these guys and and kind of being able to uh, you know, kind of sound ideas out with each other. Rick Phelps was actually on site with me uh, for a day last year up at TPC Colorado because he's local. He and I actually went to school together before I ever thought of being a golf course architect. He and I were were. Uh, uh, design studio partners at uh, Boulder in Colorado, and and so he came out last year and and walked around the site with me for a day and and uh, checked things out and offered his opinion. And so that's it's a neat aspect to the business. You know, we we you know we compete against each other all the time, and we're all trying to get you know products. But at the end of the day, we all kind of relate with each other, and and it's generally just a really good group of guys. They're fun to fun to be around. I've asked a few architects this question on this podcast series, what's a project or type of project you haven't done that you would really like to do? What would be your quote unquote dream situation or, or dream site right now? That's it's an interesting question. I've, I've, I've done a lot of different types of projects. I think I've done a lot of projects, you know, volume wise, but I've, I've had a good opportunity to do, you know, standalone courses and, 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 and good renovation projects and, and new projects. Um, I, I just think you know maybe getting a chance to do something that's really just got a complete design flexibility. You know, there's so many times when you have to incorporate. You know, like with the TPC courses I talked about. You know, there's a there was a design there's a development component that had to be factored in. So, well, I think the golf course has turned out great from a design standpoint, and we prioritized the golf. In the end, we were able to prioritize the golf. You still had to make concessions for development. I haven't had a project where you really can just get in there and just you just you know, pure golf, and or from a renovation standpoint, you know, instead of doing a five or ten year master plan and having to kind of work through step by step, being able to go in there and just, just you know, have the course, the club, just say, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna shut it down for a year. Let's just do the whole thing and let's do it the best we can possibly do right now, and not have to worry about any any other outside influences. That's kind of an idealistic vision from a from a design standpoint, but the reality is. So many projects have so many other impacts that you've got to factor in, and that's just that's just part of the deal. But if I could get onto something either new or renovation where you really could just just you know dial in on the design and, and not have the other outside influences, that would be uh, that might be fun to to be involved in. Well, Art, 
thank you so much for joining the podcast. This was a ton of fun. And congratulations on getting TPC Colorado completed. And good luck with your upcoming projects. It sounds like you're going to be doing some fun things. So thanks a lot. And we look forward to catching up with, with you again soon. Guy, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me. That was I, I really enjoyed it. And I look forward to talking to you again soon.